As both co-founders of Identity Unveiled, we're so excited to have you join us today on our second episode of Breaking Barriers series with Asian women in VC. For those of you joining us for the first time, we formed Identity Unveiled, or IU, as a national platform to serve um, a powerful collective voice, especially during times like this, uh, for Asian female pioneers in America. Women leaders that have established a precedent or broken barriers and have ultimately forged a historic, uncharted path. And our reason for doing this is actually quite simple. You know, we often see the results of success and living in the shadows of the model minority myth. And so rarely do we get a glimpse into the journey it took to get there. And so using this platform, we couldn't, which couldn't be more timely in light of the unfortunate rise in Asian hate crimes across our country. So we really appreciate your support and your continued support um, as we give the spotlight to amazing women like Maithali today and other Asian women leaders across the US. So you can follow our stories here on Hub and you can also join us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Well, let's get right to it since we're about 10 minutes after and we've got so much that we wanna cover with Maithali's story. Um, Diane, why don't you tell us a little bit about Maithali before we get started? Absolutely, Maithali is, and I apologize if I'm not saying it right, my my Michaeli is a co-founder and managing director of Nay3 Fund Future Fund and Nay3.org, which is a nonprofit of South Asian women professionals, and helping achieve their helping them to achieve their success in careers. With over 25 years of experience spanning from R and D to product product management in tech companies to tech entrepreneurship and nonprofit management, she's actively involved in several nonprofits focus on girls' education and serves on the regional board of Room to Read and also of uh, a global advisor on how women lead. She has a master's degree in physics from Texas Tech and an uh, MBA from Morton at UPenn. So my family, I'm gonna start right into it. Uh, earlier when we talked this week, you talked about how you grew up in Goa and you spoke about being absolutely obsessed with being a doctor. And of course, you know, in India, there, you know, you either chose medicine or engineering, right? And so, but you had it in your mind that you were going to be a doctor. And then there was this pivot where your family moved and you decided to go into electronics and physics. So what happened there? What, what led to that decision from medicine to physics? Um, interesting backstory for sure. You know, they say when life gives you lemons, you go, try and make something out of it, uh, sort of similar situation. I was, as, as you mentioned, obsessed about medicine during my middle and high school years, always thought that's what I'd study. And after living in one place for almost 15 years, my dad's work took him elsewhere to another state in India. And it was completely inconceivable for my parents, especially my dad, to leave me uh, in, uh, in a place all by myself, uh, working on a professional degree and staying in a dorm. That was unthinkable for him, which is what would have happened if I decided to pursue medicine living in Goa, where my parents and the entire family would have migrated to Mumbai. And so um, there, was no, there were no arguments even, honestly, Shweta, as I told you. He said, no, not happening. And that was it. 
And so I, I harbored for a, for a year thinking somehow over the course of the one year I would convince him and I'd go back because I still had a seat in Goa Medical College. And so I could go do this, right? And so I decided to pursue physics thinking, I'm never going to get a chance to really study physics. And I'd always enjoyed physics um, uh, as a child. And so I thought I'm going to really focus on a subject that I'm not going to pursue. That is why I did physics, little knowing that I would study it for much longer than I'd envisioned. And here it is, you you know, your dad would not let you stay in Goa and still yet you somehow found yourself in Texas pursuing a graduate degree. Now, how did you convince your father to move all the way across the world to Texas? I actually didn't. Uh, I left it to my mom. This was all a very sort of strategic ploy between my mom and me. My mom actually told me, you do everything you need to do in terms of applying to schools. There's, I can't help you there. I know nothing about the process. My mom was always very ambitious. You know, she didn't get to go to college herself because she came from a family of 11 where there were seven boys. Uh, and four girls and uh, she and her older sister didn't get to go to college because the boys had to go. And so she was determined that she, she was already feeling quite guilty about not being able to put her foot down and letting me go study medicine. So this time she was, she was uh, very clear about supporting me in this endeavor. She said, all you have to do is get a scholarship and I will make sure to convince your dad. And so, so that ploy and, or strategy worked quite well, actually. And uh, she did all of the maneuvering and the positioning, as I'd say, uh, whereas I had to focus on applying and getting my scholarship. And that's how I landed in Texas. So you get to Texas. Um, I got to ask, you know, being a woman, um, you weren't married although the, the pressure was there for you to get married before you came. Um, how was that? How did you find belonging in community being a South Asian woman in, in Texas that time? Fascinating. I mean, I have so many adjectives that come to mind because um, this was Lubbock, Texas in 89. Uh, Lubbock, as you know, is also, you know, especially Shweta, you coming from Texas is also the Bible Belt. There were, I would constantly run into folks trying to convert me, uh, convert my religion. There were folks that would just run up to me as I'd walk on campus and, you know, they wanted to know where I came from. And if I said India, they'd say, oh, I saw in, in an Indiana Jones movie, they eat monkey brains in India, don't they? Do you eat monkey brains? And then of course, uh, you know, once I assured them that I didn't, and as we progressed um, uh, in the conversation, the next sort of surprising element for most of them was the fact that I could speak English or articulate as well as I did in English. And I had to let them know that I could only think in English and that I, I actually didn't have the ability to think in any other language other than English. And for many of us in India, that was the norm, but that was always a surprising element for people I'd run into. Even students, I was you know, um, a, a teaching assistant for a semester. And I remember students being, re of course I had a strange accent, in their uh, in their view but still they would be really surprised that I could articulate in English that was one of the most common questions I'd get yes yeah well you proved them wrong and that you were very capable um, mm -hmm. so you moved from Texas Tech 
uh, you graduate from Texas Tech and, and your career takes you through IBM. You focused a lot on R&D. Um, and then, so you were gonna play it around in the South for a bit and then you got to the West Coast. So what took you to the West Coast? This was the height of the internet boom. Early 2000 is when my family, my husband and I and our um, daughter moved to the West Coast. And as techies, both my husband and I were clearly, you know, enamored by the internet and the boom and the action was all in Silicon Valley. And so it, uh, our decision was literally over one hour. I remember it so vividly. We had a friend, one of my husband's friends who visited us for a Thanksgiving dinner. And by the end of the dinner, he talked about the startup that he was planning and how he really would like for us to move and join him. I didn't, my husband did, but, um, and we said yes, because, you know, we, we, we're both major risk takers, my husband and I, we call ourselves Mavericks. We just built a home, by the way, at that point <clears throat> in New Jersey, we built a home, moved in and had just bought some furniture when we decided to move again, all the way across country. Mm. So, so you join a tech startup. We both joined startups. Okay. So you kind of rode that wave. Yes. And, and that was your entree into the whole technology startup Bay area. Forum. I actually have a very interesting, if I may take a few seconds, uh, anecdote from that experience. So this was, as I said, the internet boom, right? And so when you had a technology background, like I did at that time, Companies were interviewing over the phone. They, I didn't do a single live interview or in-person interview. And all the offers were done over the phone. That was the craze at that time. And I actually had an offer from Google that I turned down to go huh. join the startup. I wish I had a crystal ball at that time. It was quite foreshadowing of the way we do it now. Yes. So I turned down Google and went on to join this um, early stage startup called eVoice. So. So, then, so then what was kind of that pivotal moment for you that you jumped from startup entrepreneurial world into becoming an investor? Um, several uh, steps and maybe even missteps along the way uh, before I got there, I'd say. So, you know, I spent um, several years staying in tech in product management primarily, and then did first a pivot and went on to head up a nonprofit organization, which was very much an entrepreneurial startup-like experience because there was this new uh, venture philanthropy model that was evolving that was fascinating. And so I jumped and did that first for about five years and uh, learned a lot. I, I'd say that was definitely transformative and almost baptism by fire for me because I learned you know, what fundraising really meant. I learned how to manage very large teams. We had teams you know, all across the US as well as in India. We, um, I also learned how to manage with very little resources. And I always tell folks, before you do a startup, go work in a nonprofit. You'll really learn, you know, startup life will look easier actually or pales in comparison in terms of managing with little to no resources. But it was around 2006 when the itch, when I was at this um, nonprofit that the itch to go back to tech started to become stronger. 
and I had this opportunity to go um, run. I was not the founder. The company had two early founders who were tinkering with the idea in the garage, but I really took that idea, went and raised the first seed round, built the team. I was the CEO of this tech company and we built our MVP. We had quite a bit of traction, but um, it was trying to raise our series A and scale the company when uh, I have to say that was a huge aha moment. Uh, talk about conscious and unconscious bias in the tech world. I'll tell you, I, yes, I ran into a number of those issues where being a woman in tech and a lot of women in tech can resonate with that. But it's when you uh, come face to face with the venture ecosystem that you really understand what bias is about, especially as a, a female entrepreneur. What this, was the bias though that you faced? What was, the, what was the bias you faced? Um, well, several, I think, first of all, uh, you know how many times, and I pitched to, I think, at least 75 plus VCs. I lost count after a while. But the first thing is, uh, it doesn't matter that you, you come with a technical background and your credentials uh, indicate how capable you are, right? They, the question that they would ask me repeatedly and focus and grill me was around risk mm -hmm. and mitigating risk. Somehow in their minds, being a female entrepreneur, the risk factor was very high. And so that barrier to sort of address risk in your idea was almost insurmountable. I mean, the kinds of questions that I remember that distinctly, even what almost 15 years later, it's, it's still imprinted. And it seemed, um, it seemed um, that there was very little way you could actually, and, and, other than saying, well, here I have, here are all my product lines, Here's, uh, here are all my paying customers, which you're supposed to have, you know, when you're um, just launching, there was no way to mitigate those risks. So that I remember very much. The other bias was, I actually had two VCs who told me, uh, we we, we'd be happy to present a term sheet to you, but we have to bring our own team, which basically meant we have to replace you. Mm. So, so I don't you, know if bias gets any more uh, direct than that. <laughs> how did you overcome that when they said that we have to replace you? How did you respond to that? I, I refused. I mean, I didn't take those term sheets. And of course, we had to close the company because of that, because we couldn't close the round and we couldn't continue further. So we um, had to, you know, do a fire sale of our IP and assets and basically shut down the company no other choice but that's how I dealt with it what was the reason that they wanted to bring in their own team like what did they have a solid reason for that no they they don't give you reasons they don't give you any explanations I mean you get even today I talk to several female founders and they say they have no visibility into why they are turned down for funding and that really has to change. It's not to say, you know, that they don't have valid reasons, but there's absolutely no visibility at all. And this is something that I see very different with female funders or female investors. Most of the female investors that I worked with, and I worked in a number of uh, female-led investment um, teams, they're very, very particular and very conscientious about giving feedback, feedback that matters, that will really help the founder, you know, traverse the path to getting successfully founded or not, 
or not not every idea can be found uh, can be funded clearly and not every founder can be funded but i think especially with women especially with first time female entrepreneurs or male entrepreneurs for that matter right it's important that they get the right kind of feedback absolutely so let's pivot to you know the success you've had with netri in your nonprofit and how it grew within one year to over 1600 members that's incredible what i would love to learn is did you have a did you realize you were going to go into vc after that sorry what was the last question did you realize uh, you were going to go into vc after starting a nonprofit oh absolutely in fact i would say the the vc arm of the fund was an impetus to start netri versus the other way to tell you the truth the fund was something i felt very strongly about i knew as uh, i'd mentioned uh, to shweta i knew in my own network many accomplished south asian women and i realized that this was an un- untapped potential these were folks that were not just um, accredited investors but also had breadth and depth of expertise you know across industries across functional areas that i knew had never participated in this ecosystem at all and it's very important i know from my own experience both as an entrepreneur as well as a funder that you ha- bring these diverse perspectives and expertise to the table uh, that's how this ecosystem will uh, will leap and you'll start to see uh, more innovation right so i knew how important that was but um i didn't know why i wasn't seeing why i wasn't running into more south asian women in these investor networks that i was part of so it really started that's where my um uh, curiosity began and the journey to start netri really began uh, uh, when i started to ask those questions and i reached out to folks that i knew to find out why they were not being part of these um Uh, these conversations and these opportunities and then realized through that exercise that it was first important to build community and to build a trusted community because and before you start to ask people to open their checkbooks and so that so it was a question of which came first and i realized the community came first so sort uh, set out to first build that platform and then the fund became a natural extension So when so you had the end in mind creating a fund through this community is what I'm hearing. You had it in a... end in mind creating this community uh are you, are you I'm not sure I fully understand the question but are you asking me if the fund is a is a, an end to the community or a uh so you know earlier when you're you know it was very strategic to create this community and then pivot to a fund because now you have all these amazing relationships so it sounded very strategic it is very strategic but i wouldn't say that the fund is a pivot from the community so the community will grow and we have several pillars of focus with the community the fund is just an extension or one of the initiatives a sister initiative we call it to the community so i don't see there's those as either or we have lots of overlap several members of netri.org are lps in the fund and the fund you know we we are still fundraising we intend to uh, fundraise for the next few months we hope the the community pretty much almost acts as the pipeline right both from a deal flow perspective we have several south asian female founders from netri.org from the community that will hopefully apply 
to uh, seek funding and if if not funding we'll leverage the resources that we're building under the fund umbrella to help help them thrive so so i see these very much interconnected mm -hmm. are your lps uh, largely in the us through the nakri uh, yes screen? we have uh, a small number i mean probably uh, a very very small number in single digits from canada and we're starting to suddenly see a little bit of interest from the uk i mean we haven't even really honestly marketed the fund um, in any big way because um, we are leveraging a SEC structure that allows us to have 249 LPs if it's a $10 million or under fund, but they all have to be accredited investors. So a lot of our outreach is very, very focused and direct. I am curious as you as we think about the community, the South Asian community, um, what, and specifically for women, what do you think are you know, what are you noticing or do you know are the challenges that you feel are unique to South Asian females entrepreneurs and even in the investment capacity? Well, I'll tell you first, um, several times I run into this when I talk to potential investors. And I think this is definitely a cultural nuance. Um, very pronounced, certainly in the South Asian community. And I can um, I won't say I can relate to it, but I, I, I understand it. So many of the women that I've spoken to, these are all senior operators, senior leaders that are financially independent. But when it comes to investing decisions, the, the common theme has been, it's not about asking or consulting with, uh, it's not about consulting with my spouse, it's about asking permission to do this. Wow. And these are women, as I said, on paper, financially independent, who are holding it on their own, who are senior VP level and above saying this. So it's very interesting. And I've seen, it's not just one or two, several have indicated this. That How do you manage that? Permission. Um, why is that? Uh, okay. I mean, how, do you, how do you manage that? I mean, how do you manage that? Well, it's taken time. I mean, it's uh, I've had calls with the husband on Zoom. <laughs> That's what it took, uh, right? And but I've also been very clear that it's the woman that will be listed as the LP. The communications, the fund communications, will all go to the woman. She will be the signatory, and that is really important. So you know, small small changes, but hopefully, and also one of the things we have promised as part of the fund is education. LP education, right, in terms of whether it's terms, many of them, uh, and again, these are very smart people, incredibly uh, capable women, right, and so um, they're just new to this, to this world of investing, and so our goal is to ensure that we have a strong education focus. Mm. So through the education, you know, what are some of the assurances that you can give to, to women who you know, have to seek counsel from their partner um, in order to move forward with how to manage their own money? Tough question. I don't know if we can actually give them any assurances because honestly, I think this is something they need to uh, take charge of. But what we can do is inform them with knowledge, right? A lot of the, the fear, the hesitation, I think comes from... Uh, 
never having done this before and fearing that they don't know how they could make mistakes what if they lose all their money and so i think a lot of it comes from that and hopefully through education through this journey as an lp they will be better informed as i said these are all you know very smart women and so they will understand the nuances of investing you know what does it mean to do due diligence how does one even evaluate a startup company what does capital call mean i mean what does an lp even mean a lot of people have asked me what what is an lp what is this is this what does that even signify so it starts from there understanding term sheets and um, understanding due diligence and understanding the fact i mean the whole reason we put the emphasis on accredited investor is that they understand this is speculative but it is important to invest in the kind of companies you want to see in the world and there there is tremendous power in doing that and you could lose all your money do uh, and and that's okay and that's why we only focus on accredited investors where it's okay to take these kinds of bets and it's important and it's more, it's important to back these entrepreneurs mm. tell us more about um on the fund in terms of how many investments will we be doing for fund 1 and what stages so fund 1 um it started out with a very modest approach we were initially thinking of only raising 3 million just so we could cover you know the bare minimum costs we've already crossed 5 so now 10 million really looks like an achievable dream right we plan to do anywhere from 15 to about 25 investments and again it it's contingent on how much uh, what what the final raise looks like we uh, will write anywhere from a 50k check to a 500k check we are stage agnostic so we'll do anywhere from late seed series d even if we get the allocations we don't intend to be the lead investor in any of the investments we make we will write the coattails of an already um uh, lead investor uh, is in place so assuming that there's a top tier company that's already investing we will be a co-investor and the reason for that is uh, the reason for you know being stage agnostic and really focusing more on the uh, latter stages the later stages as well as um, being a co-investor is because it's a first fund and i told you the 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 mind frame of the mental space right of our uh, lps being so risk averse we don't want them to wait the full 10 years which is the life of the fund to see any kind of return uh, which is what happens when you invest in a very very early stage we want them to see some early returns and see this as a path to wealth creation and and participation right and so that's why we want to make sure we we have a diverse portfolio of late seed all the way through you know much later stage companies Wonderful. Well, I guess we can. Uh, you know, the next question is: What does the future of the fund look like? Where do you want to go? Where is you know you or are you casting the vision along with, you know, amazing LP and the and the South Asian woman community? Where where is the fund? I hope our next fund is a hundred million dollar fund. That. that is the goal i also hope that i have nothing to do with it and that there's a whole pipeline of south asian women that want to be vcs and and help raise that fund and that we do it 50% individual lps but we also raise institutional money and all, that will really be contingent on how well we do fund one uh, and 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 um 
and tell tell the world that this can be done and it can be done well and give that assurance and so so that's that's the dream or the vision that we will have fund 2 and fund 3 and others as well and we bring this whole untapped pool of investors to the table and it it benefits both the investors it also immensely benefits the entrepreneurs because just imagine now they have this whole world of, in our case, 249, if we end up uh, with that number of incredibly talented women who are ready to advise, who they can tap into for executive talent, who can serve on boards, who can open doors perhaps for business development. I mean, the possibilities are actually pretty endless. You know, as I'm hearing you, you talk about this, Michael, and you know, it's interesting because the hesitation that some of your investors have, you don't have. Um, even yeah. as an entrepreneur, I think there's this thought around the risk, right? The risk of becoming an entrepreneur. And yes, I mean, in South Asian culture, maybe that risk piece is a little more prevalent. Um, you know, how do you, how did you work your way around risk? You know, what, what is your mindset around risk? Um, I have a high tolerance for risk. I think I'd like to say that clearly, but I also think that I've been fortunate um, to have the support system that has nurtured that, whether it is my spouse who's let me go, uh, you know, take the risks I want and try different things, uh, whether it is having uh, an incredibly supportive um, set of parents and in-laws. My in-laws live with me, by the way, they've lived with me for 23 years and they have been part of every venture. My father-in-law makes my coffee every morning while I'm you know, taking an international call. So having that support system, which again, I think is unique to our culture, um, a lot of people have raised eyebrows if they're not South Asian, especially. And I say that my in-laws have lived with me for 23 years. They think I'm nuts. Uh, why would I do that to myself? But the pros have always outweighed the cons for me, um, whether it is help raising my daughters, whether it is just you know, having, uh, as I said, somebody that brings you coffee in the morning at 90, my father-in-law makes coffee and he gets offended if I tell him one day, no, I don't want you to do this. I can do this myself. He would be terribly offended uh, if I said that to him. So I think having that support system played a huge role. We underestimate the value of having that support system. Um, I, I, I have benefited hugely. I think that's increased my propensity for risk because right. I feel, you know, it's okay. I can go make a few mistakes. I can still go home and I'm still mom. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still okay. Yeah. I truly think that's what worked for me. Nothing else, there's no other magic. Mm. Just having that support structure. Yeah. It's been huge. So it was your, your husband who, your partner who supported you. Um, you know, you didn't have to make a call to him to decide what it is that yes. you wanted. I never asked permission, not <laughs> once, actually. Uh-huh. And neither did he have to, to tell you the truth. We both were, very, this is what gender parity does, to tell you the truth. For us, it, we practice it every day at home. Uh, it's really important. And so imagine if everyone had that opportunity. I think the world will be a far better place. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm curious then when we think about your culture and, and how it's influenced your, your path to success, um, you know, what do we need in place to ha get more South Asian women at that managing direct, that, that partner level in the VC realm? And even for you know, South Asian women to feel more, um, to get them more comfortable with the, um, with being an entrepreneur, like what needs to change from a, from a leadership perspective? What more can we do? I think the single most important thing is representation. We need a lot more role models in those places. I, you know, I have two girls for them to feel that they can be anybody they want. They need to see a lot more folks, right? I mean, look, I'm just a simple uh, middle-class girl who, who got to this place. I want other women, other South Asian women to look at me and say, if she can do it, I can. And I think the more representation we have, and that's why I, you know, that's why we created even an A3 to create dialogue, to create spaces where women can interact with others and find out that, you know, there are all these, so many of our Netri women tell me every day, I had no idea that there were all these South Asian women doing all these things, right? And so many of us live in bubbles. We need to get outside our bubbles. We need to get outside our comfort zone, but it becomes easier when you see others doing this. And I think that, that just increases confidence. And so I, I truly believe role modelship is really important. Representation is really important. And we need this across the board, not just with South Asian. I mean, we know how important it is, whether you're a black woman, whether you're a black person, whether you're Hispanic or Latina, or whether you are LGBTQ, you need representation across all levels. And this whole um, the noise we hear around diversity, it, it, it's real. We really need diverse representation in every, on every table. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So relevant right now. So I, I, you know, we love the, what you're doing with Nay3. So if we have people who are joining us today or, or people who are joining us who have friends who might be interested in knowing more about Nay3, um, how can they get involved? Uh, really simple right now with Nay3, all you have to do is go to our website. It's nay3.org, N-E-Y-T-H-R-I.org. You can see that in my background as well, the spelling. And it's a simple form that you fill out and you join, you become part of the Nay3 community. You get access to our events. We are also launching uh, a member portal um, shortly uh, that you can find out. We also, uh, if you're interested in the fund, uh, we, we have a fund website now. It's called nay3futuresfund.com. Again, write to us or feel free to um, write to me at mightily at nay3.org as well. If you want more information, um, welcome. Any questions, thoughts, anything at all? Well, you know, we love your story. Um, we are going to be recording this, so it's going to be available on our podcast, on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So if you, if you have friends that missed this episode and they want to learn more about MyFlee and Nay3 and the fund and this absolutely wonderful organization that they have to support South Asian women entrepreneurs and investors, um, please check them out and check out our podcast. I love what you both are doing. Wishing <laughs> you both much success. This is it awesome this was this has been so much fun just talking to you guys and doing this and very comfortable i didn't prepare or do anything <laughs> uh, thank you for you know making this so much fun and easy